0: What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now... those
1: who have faith in Jesus. Emily, thank you very much for reading for us. I'd love you to keep that open. If you want to find some headings, then uh, there's some on the back of that service sheet. I'd love to to tell you an interesting fact. Um, uh, Apparently, I'm told on good authority that a quarter of homes in the UK don't have a dining table anymore. It's an interesting piece of information for you. Uh, on a Sunday morning. Uh, what does that tell you? Does that, does that indicate to you uh, the demise of family life uh, or the rise of the microwave? Um, it certainly tells you that a centerpiece of our homes is beginning to disappear. Because, I mean, the table's pretty central, isn't it, in most homes? The place where we sit, the place where we eat, the place where we talk um, has been for generations. Well, how would it be Um, if instead of losing, as it were, the the centerpiece of your home, uh, we found that we were lacking the centerpiece of our Christian faith. The the passage that we're looking at today takes us to the centerpiece, as it it were, the table uh, at the very heart of uh, a person's spiritual life. And you might be somebody who... Uh, as it were has has lots of other bits in place you've got the bookshelves there you've got a you've got a nice comfy chair over there and yet perhaps without you even realizing it the centerpiece that the table that ought to be there right at the middle isn't there maybe it used to be there and and you've allowed it to sort of slide out or maybe it has never been put in place because the, the truth that is here in this paragraph Uh, in Paul's letter to the Romans has never become clear to you. Uh, One writer uh, says that uh, uh, this paragraph is the centre and heart of the entire letter. Another goes even further and calls it the most single important paragraph that has ever been written. And what I want to do this morning is try and get it clear. We're going to save, as it were, the implications uh, of the things that we find here in this paragraph. Save the implications for next week. Uh, This week, I I just want to be as clear as I can about what it is, this centerpiece of Christianity. Uh, And we're going to do it around um, three contrasts. You'll see the headings. Uh, Three things, as it were, that uh, this centerpiece isn't, and three things that it is. Uh, as we look at the cross of Jesus Christ. So here's the first. Not our achievement, but God's gift. Not our achievement, but God's gift. You and I are very used, aren't we, to the idea of doing something in order to to gain something. Um, If we apply for a job, um, then we, we submit our CV, our record of achievement, our list of accomplishments, the jobs we've done before. Uh, we, we give, as it were, our, our record of qualification. Here are the reasons that I am worthy of the job. Give it to me. Or we do the same thing if we apply for a course of study. Um, here are my exam results. Here, here, here's the basis by which I qualify to be allowed into your most excellent university. I recently had a similar experience with um, a delightful young man uh, who came to have a conversation with me because he wanted uh, to know whether I would consider him worthy of having the hand of my daughter in marriage. Now, that took some qualifying for, I can tell you. That was an extensive interrogation of his merits, before he was going to be granted that privilege uh, and be allowed to enter in. Now, because that's the way that the world works, you know, because we're so familiar with that idea, you know we present our attributes and uh, we are granted something. we assume that it, that it must apply also uh, to the way that we do business with God presumably we must present our, our good deeds. You know, we must show God how well we have lived if he is going to accept us and count us worthy of relationship with him. Or we give him our list of religious observances. Or we tell him about some spiritual experience. And, and we tell him why we think he ought to let us in. Uh, And if our record is good enough, then he accepts us. But what this passage is telling us is that that simply isn't the way that it works. If that is how we imagine dealing with God operates, then we've missed the heart. The table is not there at the center of our Christian faith. Uh, And the first reason that it doesn't work like that is because we will never come up to scratch. We will never be able to present a a record of achievement that is good enough. That's what we've been hearing in in a sort of relentless form these past four weeks as we've worked through chapters 1, 2, and the beginning of chapter 3 of Romans. Uh, In case we've missed it, Paul sums it up again here. See it there in verse 22. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. It doesn't matter who you are, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You you may be a Jew and you've got the the, the law of God. Well, you fall short. You've not kept it. But what if you haven't got the law? What if you're a a Gentile? You're a non-Jew. So you've never had the law. In that case, our conscience condemns us. Uh, I've heard it explained something like this. If you imagine um, that uh, you went through life with a little little voice recorder hung around your neck, and suppose that this uh, voice recorder recorded every time that you told somebody the way that they ought to live, the things that they should do, and the things that they shouldn't do, your view about how life is supposed to be lived. And if at the end of time, as you come before the judgment throne of God, God would have say, I understand, you. you weren't a Jew, you didn't have the law. Maybe you weren't very religious, you never read the Ten Commandments. Well, I won't judge you by the law. I won't judge you by the Ten Commandments. I won't judge you even by the Sermon on the Mount. Anything like that, you didn't read it. Let's judge you by the way that you expected other people to live. Let's listen to the things you said others should do. And he reaches forward and presses play. And you hear all the things that you said to others about what they should do and shouldn't do. Let's apply that measure to your life. Would you pass? We have no record of righteousness. We don't even live by our own standards. Never mind the standards of a pure and holy God. If getting into heaven, if being in relationship with God, depended upon our record of achievement, then we would be lost, you and I. But what this paragraph is telling us is that God isn't taking from us. He isn't saying, Give me your record of achievement. No, He is giving. Look at verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. And then he goes on to say in verse verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. We have this notion of religion that that it's, it's as if God constructs a ladder and says, here you go. See how you can do. Climb this. Get to the top. Keep all my rules. uh, Achieve all the good things that you need to do. Get to the top and and then you'll find your way to me. And we miss what Christianity is all about, which is that God has come down the ladder with his gift of righteousness and grants it to us and, as it were, carries us back to the top because of it. The cross isn't about our achievement. It is about his gift to us. But, but we need to press further. What, what is this gift? Uh, our second heading. It's not just about removing wrong, but it's also about making right. Um, hard to miss the fact that Christians are pretty big on the idea of forgiveness. Um, rightly so. It is a wonderful thing to be forgiven, to, to be pardoned. But do you notice that that's not actually the focus of this paragraph? It's not what this paragraph's about. It doesn't say, and now, apart from the law, the forgiveness of God has been made known. No, it says, now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. And, and that word, that idea of righteousness, big idea in the passage, that comes over and over again. Um, we slightly miss it because... Um, Three words, um, justified, just, or justice, and righteousness, are in the original language, or have the same root, they're the same basic idea of of kind of doing right. That's justice, You, you do the right thing. Or of being put right, that's being justified. Or of having a right status. That's righteousness. And this idea is so much more than forgiveness. Um, how can I try and capture it? Um, forgiveness is essentially negative, isn't it? it it's, it's taking something away. Um, it's saying, you are guilty, there is a penalty, but I'll forgive you. Um, but righteousness is positive righteousness bestows something upon you it grants a person a status forgiveness happens when a person um, as it were, was in prison and a pardon is granted and a door is opened and the announcement is made you may go you're forgiven, you may go righteousness as it were grants a status and says you may come you may draw near because of the status that you have Um, let let me try it this way imagine um, imagine for some reason this coming summer you gate crash the Queen's Garden Party in Buckingham Palace I don't know why, but you do. And I don't know how you get in, but you manage it. And so there you are in the Queen's Garden party, feeling rather pleased with yourself, um, when f- suddenly um, one of those sort of beef eater types... Is it the, is it the beef that look after the Queen with the big hats and the gun? It's not. Who is it? Isn't it? Don't they? Well, anyway, a, a very official person um, with a very large gun um, comes and finds you and says, Excuse me, um, you're not supposed to be here. Um... But even though I've caught you in a place where you're not supposed to be, the Queen is in quite a good mood. It's been a good year. She's had her 70th wedding anniversary, and so she is going to forgive you. There will be no prosecution, uh, and uh, uh, you won't have a criminal record. Uh, you may leave. Now that would be good, wouldn't it? I mean, you would feel pleased. You would think, phew, uh, you know, I nipped out with that one. I haven't got a criminal record. I'm not going to go to prison. Um, I'm going to get out good and you scuttle off out of Buckingham Palace but how different if having gate crashed this garden party and and the person with the rifle uh, who looks very official comes and grabs you and says you're not supposed to be here you have no right to be here but the queen is quite exceptionally kind and generous, and not only is she not going to prosecute you, she would like you to have this entrance ticket to her garden party. She would like to make you an official guest, qualified to be here. In fact, would you like to come with me? Because I'd like to introduce you to Her Majesty. The first is to be forgiven. The second is to be justified to be made righteous one says you may go the other says you may come and, and you might be thinking well that's ridiculous I mean that's just crazy you know that could never happen here's the heart of the gospel it's not just the extraordinary idea of the sovereign of the United Kingdom treating you like that the heart of the gospel message is that though you and I have done wrong, though we have not lived up, though we have fallen, though we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the sovereign of the universe grants us a righteous status and says to us, you may come into my presence, into my heaven, into my glory. Not just forgiven, but made righteous before him. You could be thinking, hearing that idea for the first time, you'd be thinking, well, that just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem proper for God to do that. Doesn't that sort of turn everything upside down, saying that people who've done something wrong are actually right? How could God do that? How could God be right to say that people are wrong are actually right? It's impossible. impossible. So come to our third heading which tells us that the cross is not just overlooking sin but demonstrating justice. Uh, Many people get the idea uh, that the the cross is central to the Christian faith Uh, but far fewer actually understand what the cross really is. Uh, Many in fact view the death of Jesus as if it was sort of a tragic mistake really. As if, um, actually the good thing about Jesus was his life and his teaching and his miracles and it it was very regrettable that he died when he did. Could have done so much more if he kept living. And and the circumstances of his death were very horrible. so the death of Jesus is a tragic mistake to them. Other people view the cross as a great demonstration of love. Uh, here is, here is the most wonderful example that we should strive to imitate. But with no power to do so. I, I don't know, it would be something like um, an Olympic swimmer sort of storming up and down uh, the swimming pool and intermittently uh, looking up and seeing some non-swimmers on the side and saying, jump in, do it like this. I mean, inspiring but not terribly helpful because we can't. We don't know how to swim. So a third understanding of the cross takes us a little bit further and says, okay, well, it, it, the, the death of Jesus is supposed to inspire love in us by us discovering that Jesus died for us. It was for us that he died. But it doesn't explain how. And so the cross of Jesus becomes something like um, going out of the building here um, and uh, finding that somebody up on a rooftop shouts, I love you, and jumps headfirst off. And it's dramatic, but we don't really understand it. I mean, why have they died for us? To, to accomplish what? How has that made any difference to us at all? The Bible goes so much further. Uh, and to understand what the Bible is teaching, we need to look carefully at verses uh, 23 uh, through to 25. Now, uh, let me read those verses again. you start just earlier in verse 22. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Tucked in those verses are three really important ideas. First is the idea of redemption. That on the cross, um, God redeems us, pays a price that sets us free. The imagery is of the slave market, uh, where a slave needs to be purchased. Second idea is the idea of atonement and sacrifice. The original uses the the language of propitiation. Complicated word, but but it really just means... The turning aside of wrath. Third is the idea of justification. The granting of that new status of righteousness. We were thinking about a moment ago. And what this passage is saying is that our greatest problem, the biggest issue that we have, the greatest problem that we have in our relationship with God is not actually our sin. The biggest problem that you and I have in relation to God is his anger with our sin. That God, because he is utterly just, responds to our wrongness with anger and opposition. When we talk about the anger of God, we're not not talking about a tetchy, moody, kind of fly-off-the-handle kind of anger. No, we're talking about the settled, determined, and righteous opposition to evil that must exist at the centre of a moral universe. And it means that anger, God's anger, is rightly directed against you and I because of our sin. But on the cross, a remarkable exchange takes place. The anger of God falls not on us, though we deserve it, but it falls upon Christ who doesn't. And this remarkable exchange means that Christ, who deserved no punishment, is treated as we deserve and we who deserve no righteousness are treated as Christ deserves to be treated. He is treated as if he were the sinner so that we can be treated as if we were the beloved son. And don't misunderstand. Don't imagine that in some way you've, you've, got a, you've got a very angry God and then you've got Jesus doing a kind of appeasing work. You know, Jesus is the lovely one, God is the angry one, um, and Jesus sort of appeases the love of, of his angry father. Now, it's not like that. Father and son are joined together in this plan of salvation, both equally committed to demonstrate both God's justice and god's passionate love so that what the cross does is demonstrate the righteousness of god he does things right you see that in the middle of verse 25 god did this he had jesus die on a cross he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished see what's being said there there were some sins that had not been punished And and God can't leave sin unpunished. Not if he's right. Not if he's morally pure. So because there are these sins left unpunished, he's got to do something about that. But what he does about it is to have those sins punished in the person of Jesus on the cross. What we deserve as sinners, Christ accepts on our behalf. Now, Uh, Over the years, I've tried all sorts of different ways to try and illustrate this central point. Uh, And I don't know if any of them really work. Sometimes I go to Captain Corelli's Mandolin. Anyone remember uh, that book and film? Uh, And there's that central, pivotal scene uh, when Captain Corelli, who's part of the Italian military, uh, is turned upon in 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 a terrible massacre as German soldiers, machine gun, a group of Italian soldiers. But... Carlo, his great friend and huge bear of a man, steps in front of Corelli. And so that as the machine gun bullets tear in to Carlo's flesh, he falls backward on top of Corelli. And Corelli's pinned on the ground, drenched in Carlo's blood, but Safe. Now, there's an illustration that captures the passion of this taking the place of another. But doesn't help us with the justice bit, does it? So we go to another illustration, We a court scene, and we've got a judge up on the, on the bench who's dispensing justice because he's just and judge and doing the right thing. But then he's interested in trying to acquit somebody and he realises that he can't just let them go, so he gets off the bench, goes down, and pays the fine for them at the cashier's desk. Well, that gets the whole justice piece, but it's not very passionate. The cross gives us both of these in a way that nothing else ever will or ever can. The cross shows us how God is utterly just. Sin must be punished. But utterly loving that he'll take it in our place. You'd never make this up. You'd never invent this unless it were revealed to us that there could be a God at the centre of the universe like this, so utterly righteous and yet so utterly loving. Those two things, side by side, captured in the cross. For you and I, there's only two places that our sin and God's righteousness can come together. They will either come together in eternal condemnation in hell or they come together in this gift of righteousness on the cross where Christ bears the punishment in our place. And we, we are invited just to receive this by faith see again and again in this passage we are justified freely by his grace he justifies those who have faith in Jesus do we believe him do we really is the table in place in the centre of your Christian faith do you believe that this is true? Let me try it like this. Do you believe that the person here today who has been a faithful Christian disciple for 40 years is no more acceptable to God than the person who has been a Christian in this building for 40 seconds? You could be that person today. You don't need to have done anything. You don't need to come to Christianity and explored. You don't need to think very hard about it for a few weeks. No, it's a gift. All you have to do is grab it. That's why children do well in God's kingdom, according to Jesus. If I give you a free gift, you're thinking to yourself, hmm, I wonder if this is safe to take this. How will I manage to pay Steve back? He's inviting me around for dinner. I ought to invite him around for dinner. That's what we do. But nip down to the creche now. Get a little red ball out and hold it out. What's the child going to do? Think, Oh, I don't know about that. It's a bit dodgy. They just grab it. Shove it in the mouth. See, children are like that. They just take the free gift. Kingdom of God. It's easy for a child to enter. It's hard for you and I because we don't really believe this. See, do you believe that you could have had a spirit Spiritually glorious past week, or you could have a spiritual disaster of a past week, and you stand equal before God by faith in what Christ has done for you. It's not about what you and I do, it's, you can have had a, a catastrophic past year spiritually. By faith, receive this gift of righteousness. And you are thoroughly, completely right. As right as anybody else in this room with God. Because it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about what we do. It's not about our record of achievement. It is about his gift of righteousness to us. He gives it freely. The implications of this truth are huge. And we'll be thinking about them next week. The difference it makes to us as a community, the difference it makes to you as an individual, the transformation that comes from really believing this truth. But do we? By faith, do we draw near?